I'm going to read uh, a, cha- a paragraph in the, in the book of Acts as we've been going through um, Acts, particularly Acts chapter 6 to 12. Uh, we're finishing up this section where we're trying to get us to the Antioch church, and today we actually arrive. Today is actually where we see the Antioch church birthed. And so um, I'm going to read Acts chapter 11, 19, and following. Uh, you do have, I know some of you have copies of scriptures on your phones, so it's perfectly awesome. Uh, there are also some blue Bibles in the, in the chairs in front of you and around you, so you can follow along then. But in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, uh, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to tell of this birth of the church in Antioch. It says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found them, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Amen. Today, as we're kind of looking at this passage, you you, you see here in this passage something that happens in the Antioch church that has not happened yet. Uh, in the history of, of the church, and that is that they are first called Christians. They're given a new name, a new moniker, and, and, and really what it means is it's, it's, it has to do with their new now identity as who they are as the people of God. The labels we use to describe ourselves are not the same as our identity, but they have a lot to do with how we identify ourselves and how the people around us identify ourselves. In this kind of modern day, there's almost this, uh, kind of this idea of how do you identify and things like that. But, you know, um, since it's Mother's Day, it, some, that, that identity, and, and the moms in here can probably, you can give me some nods and assent. I think I'm, I'm going to speak right. But that identity mom is a big one. Right, that label that you get when you have children and now they begin to call you mom, that now becomes to a degree your in, to degree your identity. It takes a few years to even, to even kind of get used to that. It's a huge change. When you go from wife to mom, when you go from, from, from who you are to now your new designation as, as mom, it takes sometimes years to really, to really, really get it, grow into that identity. And I know some of you guys, we have a lot of moms in here and dads, but we have a lot of new parents in here. And I'll tell you, man, my heart, it goes out to you. It is tough to, to kind of reconfigure your entire life around a baby, but even reconfigure your entire identity around this new label that has been given you as, as mom. It's hard. There's always tension, and there's always struggle whenever we kind of are given a new identity, a new label. And here in the book of Acts, we're seeing this is happening not only on an individual level, but it's happening now here to this people of God. It's happening now to the church. Um, I've been here at OCBC for almost a decade now. And 
And often we go to ANICEF, which is the, the North American Association of Evangelical Free Churches. I think I got that right, but I might not have. Um, but so we talk about a lot of the tensions and a lot of the, the issues that face Chinese churches and that face, like, for example, for specifically English congregations. And I guess some of my reflection on this and, and where the kind of Chinese church is and where the English congregations are within those Chinese churches, what I find is a lot of them are, are kind of still fighting that battle that we saw in Acts chapter 6. I call that kind of the battle for legitimacy. In Acts chapter 6, you had, you had two different cultural groups in one church, and they were kind of had that tension of, of, of sensing that my cultural group was being neglected by the whole, right? And that happened in Acts chapter 6. And a lot of the English congregations in our denominations are, are kind of in that kind of struggle and that tension of, of their legitimacy as part of the church. And I think at OCBC, we've, we've, we've gone way past that a long, long time ago. And so I've been starting to talk to some of the other Chinese churches about, okay, well, what's the next tensions that come? And, and, and as we've been kind of like meditating on this and thinking about this together, um, I think there's another kind of tension that comes up in English congregations of Chinese churches, and it's this question, it's this tension about our identity, all right, we're, we're part of the people of God, we're part of this church, but now the question of identity is, okay, well, well, who are we? Who do we exist for? And as I've been getting to know more and more uh, and, and being able to walk alongside a lot of young people in our church as they've been growing into young adulthood, particularly the, the ones who are second generation Chinese or the children of immigrants, what I'm finding is this question of identity is, is really huge for many, many of, of it, it's, a, it's the biggest one. Every kind of teenager goes through that question of identity, every single one of us. But for you guys who kind of are growing up between cultures and have the question of, all right, am I Canadian? Am I Chinese? Am I, well, who am I? It's a really hard thing to figure out. And it's hard for us to figure out individually, and it's hard for us to figure out as an English congregation. It's hard for the Chinese churches in our network to figure out for their English congregations. Not only do we, are we legitimate, like are we actually a, a church and part of the church, but if we are, then who are we? And one of the things I really appreciate about the book of Acts is you have, the book of Acts is really honest about these trials and these tensions that face the church as they're growing, as they're maturing, and as they're, uh, and as they're trying to figure out who they are. And here in this passage we see in Antioch, we see now the church given a new label. That they're now here first called Christians in Antioch. And so I want to look quickly through this, pa through this passage and ask the question, okay, well, why are, what's different? What is it about Antioch that they're first called Christians in? What happened in Antioch that they're first called Christians there? Why there? And, and what were the causes? What led to it? Now you, uh, so we're going to look through that, and I don't have just one answer. I have a couple. Because, you know, when you ask the question, why does something happen, there's often a number of reasons. For example, why did the senators win last night? Woo! <laughs> All right. God can even bring many people together into one church. But why did the senators... One way to answer that question of why did the senators win last night is just to say because they scored more goals than the other team. Right? But that doesn't, that's not a really good newspaper story, right? Senators win, they scored more goals than the other team, done. Right? 
So there's other ways to answer that question. Why did the Senators win last night? I mean, you could say they were better coached. You could say uh, they defended the power play. I don't know anything about hockey, but I did read a story. <laughs> you all know more about hockey than I do, but they defended the power play well is what I heard. They, they did that very well. So that's one of the reasons. So, so you can answer that question of why did the Senators win, or you could answer it this way, because this year is their year. That's another way to answer the question of why did the Senators win? They're the team of destiny. So when you ask a question about when you ask a question about why does something happen in a certain place at a certain time, there's often a lot of different answers that you can give that are all legitimate. And I want to look through this text because there's a couple of answers that I've seen in this text as to why they're first called Christians in Antioch. So I'll submit to you there's five reasons that they're called Christians in Antioch, and they, they do have to now speak to us who we are today as Christians here in Ottawa. The first, I guess, the, uh, the first uh, answer that I would give as to why they're called Christians in Antioch is first, because people did not wait for permission to speak. And Zelig, you can kind of put that forward there. There we go. Because people didn't wait for permission to speak. You look at verses 19 and 20. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for Jews, or except Jews. And then verse 20, you get one of those, those buts that are always in the Bible. There's a lot of really important buts. In verse 20, you get a really important but there, because it says, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So I want you to understand something. Luke right here has, has done something. Luke has shifted some of the chronology, and you can see it in, in verse 19. Luke has shifted some of the chronology of how he's telling this story. And remember, he's telling this story to a guy named Theophilus, a Roman, uh, a Roman Gentile living in Rome, who's asking the big question, how do I know the gospel is for me and my people? And so what Luke has done is he shifted the chronology a little bit. And last week we looked at the story of how Peter was given the vision in Joppa, right? How Peter was given that vision in Joppa. And, how, and by the end of chapter 11, or, or midway through chapter 11, you have Peter going back and explaining to the church in Jerusalem what happened, that the vision he received was not just hunger pains, but it was actually the Holy Spirit. And so Peter goes back to the Jerusalem church. He he had, and, and tells them that he visited this Gentile named Cornelius, that he saw that the Holy Spirit had opened up the doors to the Gentiles, that he had commanded Cornelius and his household to be baptized. And it's, as he recounts that story in midway through chapter 11, in verse, uh, by the end of verse 17 or 18, it says, they all agreed and they all praised God, saying, well then, God has opened the door to the Gentiles as well. And so Luke has shifted that story in his telling of, of, of the whole book of Acts. But if you look at, at verse 19 here, you can see that he has shifted chronologically this story. So it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so Luke has done something here. He's actually shifting us back to what happened after, after Acts chapter 8. And the big question is why? What's he doing? Well, in chapter, nine, or in chapter 10 and 11... Luke wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit has been showing kind of the authoritative, big-wig leaders of the church. 
that, that the Holy Spirit has been showing Peter. Peter was the apostle, and Peter was, was even seen as a leader among the apostles. And so in Acts chapter 10, Peter, who's like the leader of all the people that Jesus set in charge of his church, Peter gets the vision, and the church together in Jerusalem says, yes, 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 it is true. We now see God is opening the doors to the Gentiles. But what happens here in verse 19 is that you have some people that Luke's kind of going back in time a little bit and showing us that some people didn't wait for permission. That some people just, they, at the persecution that started uh, after Stephen was stoned, they were, they were pushed into different regions uh, up, up the coast of uh, what's now Palestine and then up the coast of, of even into Syria, which is where Antioch is. So in the newspaper, when you hear all the stories about Syria, Antioch, the church uh, in that city, was, was there right there in the middle of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was no small place. It was a, it was a, it was a major city. And as some of the people go to Antioch, uh, a group of them go and they speak only to the, the Jewish people. But then in verse 20 it says, but some of them... But some of them went and spoke and preached the word to the Hellenists as well. Now here, the Hellenists, it's, it's very clear what Luke is pointing out here. These are not, we, we talked about the Hellenistic Jews, but these are not the Hellenistic Jews. It's, it's a contrast here. Some preached only to the Jews, but some people went and went and spoke to the Greeks as well. And what's amazing here is that they went out and they didn't wait for permission to speak. What you have here in this, in this but there were some of them is people just going, being filled with the gospel, carrying the word of God, and going to places, and just preaching to everybody, sharing to everybody who's in front of them. Right? There, there was no plan. The, 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 the apostles didn't have a plan for them to go and reach the Gentiles in, in Antioch. It's, it's these, these all of us type of Christians who are being sent out, scattered because of the persecution, and going and sharing the, the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone who's in front of us. What Luke does, time and time again in the book of Acts, is he shows the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. But if you read the book of Acts, you see he's also emphasizing that the work of the Holy Spirit in spreading the gospel to the, to the, to the ends of the earth is not only accomplished by the apostles, is accomplished by these people who went out with the good news, the testimony, the story of Jesus, and just started sharing with everybody who was in front of them, not waiting for the vision for Peter, not waiting for permission. They just went. They just went. And in fact, they, they went not only to the good Gentiles, like Cornelius. Remember we talked about the good Gentiles, how, how Cornelius was a guy in Acts chapter 9, how Cornelius was a guy who... Um, he was called a God-fearer, which meant he probably like, loved and followed the God of Israel, but he just hadn't been circum circumcised. He hadn't become Jewish yet. He, he was well-regarded by all the Jewish people. He had given donated alms to the people. Right? He was Cornelius' character as a good, as like the best Gentile you could be was established. His credentials were established. But in Antioch, these aren't Cornelius type of Gentiles. In Antioch, these are, these are actually, this is what I call bad Gentiles. Like, these are the Gentiles that went to temple. Or, or these were the Gentiles that went to the pagan temples. These were the Gentiles. Uh, what I read about uh, one picture of Antioch that I got from one of the commentaries says this. The city was proverbial for sexual immorality. 
Five miles outside of town was the grove of Daphne, where worshippers of Artemis and Apollo pursued their religion of pleasure with temple prostitutes. The Roman satirist, so, so here's a Roman guy writing, and he writes funny things, and he's, Rome, you don't think of Rome as being like a city of virtue necessarily, but here's a Roman satirist, what he has to say, Roman satirist Juvenal criticized the moral pollution of Rome by saying that the sewage of Orantes, which is a river flowing through Antioch, had too long been discharged into the Tiber flowing through Rome. He was basically saying that Antioch was so corrupt that it was impacting Rome more than 1,300 miles away. And so these guys are just going. They're, 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 they're Christians. They are regular, everyday, you and me Christians being scattered and going to Antioch. Probably they had connections there because it was a large major city. And while some of them were... Some of them were just going to the Jewish people because that's all the Holy Spirit had revealed to them at the time. Some of them just went and just found the people in front of them and said, hey, I need to tell you about the one who's changed my life. I need to tell you about Jesus. And what I want to share with you today, just, just here, is you don't necessarily, I want to, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon every single Christian, upon placing their faith in Christ. That means that the same spirit that fills the apostles fills this church. It means the same spirit that energized and motivated the apostles fills, the same spirit fills each one of you who are truly born again. Sometimes we, we go through our life and we go through our school and we go into our workplaces and we go into our neighborhood, and, we, and we, you might go home and you re, might read devotionally the book of Acts, you might read devotionally the Bible, or you might come to church and hear me preach. And we have convinced ourselves, we've convinced ourselves that we have no power to impact our school, that we have no power to impact our workplaces, that we have no power to impact our neighborhoods. And truly what that is, is, is in a sense a lack of faith in knowing that the same power that is at work in us is, is the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That God has equipped, this is part of the teaching of the New Testament, that God has equipped the church, every member, with different gifts, with different passions, with different burdens, with different opportunities. He has given each of us a sphere of influence around us. And to truly believe the Holy Spirit can work through me and that you do not need permission from the church to go and preach. You don't need permission from the church to go and share Jesus with the people who are in front of you. We're going to see how the Jerusalem church followed up with that. But, but I will just say right now, if God is putting a burden on your heart, if God is putting a people in front of you, if God has put his spirit and his word on your mouth and in your heart, go and share and be confident that God will do the work. That's what is the next part of this. They're Christians in Antioch because some people didn't wait for permission to go and share with the people in front of them. But they're Christians in Antioch, and this is just the simplest point it's from four words in the text. They're, they're Christians in Antioch because, maybe more than four words in the text, but verse 21, because the hand of the Lord was with them. This is the New Testament application of what is said in the Old Testament when it said, unless the Lord builds a house, he who labors is in vain. It's what Paul spoke about in Corinthians when he said, I 
Uh, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. This is the idea that it is God who blesses our effort when we just go and share. That, that it's, not, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not our labor, it's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working through us. So they're Christians, they're called Christians. They receive, if, if, if God's hand wasn't upon their efforts, there would be no conversion in Antioch, there'd be no church in Antioch, and there'd be no one to receive the name Christian. We pray that God's hand would be with us. It's the great fear of our ministry. I, I, I hope when you're praying for our church, I hope when you're praying for OCBC, I hope that when you're praying for me and for our board and for our leaders, here's one prayer to pray upon us. That the hand of the Lord would be upon us. That we would not labor in vain. It, it's, it's, God's, it's up to God how much fruit he's going to to give us. It's up to God the results of our sharing and our preaching and our teaching and our loving. The results are in God's hand. But we would pray that we would not be laboring and running in vain. This terrified Paul, the apostle at times, as, as a church planter, as the person who had heard and seen the Lord. He writes later in his ministry, I I, I pray for you that I might see fruit in you for fear that I'd be running the race in vain. It's not our, it's not our efforts. It's what, gives, what, what, what produces success and increase in ministry, but it is God's hand upon us. And so I would pray, as you're praying about and thinking about, as, you know, as our church will be moving in the next coming months, as, as we might be doing some things into the neighborhoods, as we might be praying for our new community, as you might be praying for yourself and your workplaces and your schools, wherever you are, pray that it's God's hand that is empowering and energizing us for mission, and that God might give us the increase. doesn't mean it always will happen. There are sometimes people who will labor their whole life. There will be faithful labors of the Lord, and they won't see much of an increase. But we would pray that God, we would see the hand of the Lord upon us. I would pray for OCBC that we would see the hand of our Lord upon us. So there's, there's Christians in Antioch. They're called Christians in Antioch because some people didn't wait for permission. They just went out and shared the Lord with the people in front of them. They're Christians in Antioch because God blessed the work. And they're Christians in Antioch, third, because they were a new people. I mean, all I have on for, the, for the underline here is they spoke to the Hellenists also and a great number of who believed turned to the Lord. But what's different in Antioch from any of the other cities that thus far, thus far the Christians were in was before this they were just simply called, they were, they were thought of as Jewish followers of the way. In fact, for most of the time in the book of Acts, even after this, most of them are, are, are discussed as just being disciples of Jesus, Jews, Jewish followers of the way, at this point, Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. It was considered a, a small group within Judaism of people who, who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah. And no matter where it went so far, you were seeing that the people were Jewish people who were following Jesus as Messiah. When it went to Samaria, it was still, well, Samaritans, but half Jewish people who were following Jesus as Messiah. The, the eunuch who came in was likely Jewish as well, and up, up until here, in, up until Antioch, you had the church that was predominantly 
Jewish followers of Jesus as Messiah. But suddenly in Antioch, you get these people who are worshiping at the temples. Right? Now, now you have these Greeks who are, who are now together, and they're, they're now worshiping together with these Jewish followers of Jesus. But now you can't call the whole group of them Jewish followers of Jesus anymore because they're not Jewish. And so they need a new name. They're, they've emerged as a multi-ethnic movement. Commentator C.K. Barrett just says, the new designation was probably needed when it first became apparent that the believers who had left their old Gentile ways of life were no more Jews than heathen. He calls them, this might not be politically correct today, but Commentator C.K. Barrett called Christians the third race because they were neither Jewish nor were they Gentile. They're something else. You know, the, the Jewish people the Jewish people would only eat, they, they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. But these weird Christians, in their group, you got Gentiles and Jewish people eating together. What is that? Who are these people? Right? The Jewish people wouldn't let eunuchs or Gentiles approach the temple in worship. But here, these new people, they worship God together. They welcome people who would have been excluded before. Who does that? Who are these people? And so in, in Antioch, there, this group must have grown to, to a number that people are looking at them trying to figure out these weirdos. Right? They're not, they're, not going with us to the, they're not going with us to the Greek temple. My neighbor used to go with me to the Greek temple. Now he doesn't go anymore. What, did he go, did he, did he become Jewish? No, he's not Jewish either. He's this weird thing. What is that? I don't know what that is. They say they follow this guy, Jesus, who's called Christ. Well, these weird Christians, who are they, right? So a lot of people think that this word Christian is actually a, a name that was given to them by outsiders who were just simply trying to figure them out. Trying to figure out who are these people in Antioch who can no longer really be called Jews and can no longer really be called Greeks. So what do we call them? Well, we've got to call them the third thing, Christians. So they're called Christians in Antioch because they were a new people. They're called Christians in Antioch because God blessed the work. They're called Christians in Antioch because, because God just, they didn't wait for permission. They just went and shared the gospel with others. I remember, um, I'll tell the story. It's fun to tell stories. But I remember a couple years ago, I was working through these things in the book of Acts. And... Um, thinking through our identity as an English congregation. And um, taking these ideas of the good Gentiles and the bad Gentiles, uh, when I first came to OCBC, uh, we had the Hebrew Jews. Right? We had the Chinese from China who spoke Chinese and thought Chinese, and we still have the Hebrew. The, we called them the Hebrew Jews, right? And then we had the Hellenists. The Hellenists would be, in our church, would be like the Chinese who are assimilated to a greater degree into Canada. So you think in English, you kind of work in English, you're, you're kind of Canadian, but you're Chinese background. That would be the Hellenistic Jews. Um, so when I came to OCBC, we had a bunch of good Gentiles when we first were here. The good Gentiles were um, people in our church who are not Chinese, but they like loved Chinese culture or, or, or were, were studying Chinese language or had been a missionary 
uh, you know, or, or traveled to China, or had been a missionary there, or were studying, had some interest in China. Um, who would have been that person? Peter, when you were here before, did you have, I, I see Peter, had you, you'd been in East Asia before, right? When you, were, when you came to the church here, you had an interest in East Asia. You'd been there as a, as, right? When, when I first came to the church, most of the people who were here who were not Chinese were here because it was a Chinese church. They're here because they had an interest. And, and from this kind of paradigm, we call them the good Gentiles, right? Because they're, they're, they're here because they had an interest in, in the Chinese culture, Chinese church. And I remember um, talking to Abraham when we were first moved into this building, and we were talking about just whether or not the Holy Spirit would be leading us to just love our neighborhood. And our neighborhood is predominantly made up of people, this neighborhood in Westboro is predominantly made up of people that are not Chinese, that, like, to reach them as a Chinese church would seem, seem awkward and odd or possibly weird. And I said, you know, so, so the bad Gentiles, the Gentiles who are, you know, Emma. Emma's smiling, right? Emma, can you say, uh, how much Chinese can you speak, Emma? None. None. Have you ever taken a course in speaking Chinese or anything like that? Have you watched? Right? So, like, so like, I asked Abraham, who was the pastor at the time, I said, are, do you think, OCBC, are we ready for bad Gentiles? What I mean is, are we ready to just share the gospel with whoever comes in and be okay with that? And I remember Abraham's answer was really wise. He said, uh, he said, I really believe, OCBC, we're ready to just open up the doors to whoever comes in. I really believe we're ready to just go and love our community and be a church. He said, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> That's what he said. he said. He said, don't make the five-year plan that this is our five-year plan is that we're a church for all people. What he said was, be faithful in teaching the word be faithful in loving the community, be faithful in just loving everybody who comes in, and then God will do what God does. And I was like, that is a really cool answer. Right? And it gives us confidence as a church. Like, it gives us confidence as a church that we are always still going to have, we're always going to be standing on our, on our, on our identity, or we're going to be standing on our, our heritage, we're going to be standing with our church as a Chinese church. But that but that we can be also a church for, for all people, like the Antioch Church was. And I loved Abraham's kind of counsel through that time was just go and love people and go and share the gospel with people. And when God brings people in, then we welcome them. And I think that's a way we can find our identity as a, as a, as a Chinese church, as a congregation here. We don't, we don't need to run away from our, Chinese, our Chineseness as a church, and we're not going to. We don't, need to, we don't need to run away from that, but we also are now open to loving whoever comes in through the doors. And that, I've gotten that and received that from seeing how this, this church in Antioch makes it and works through those things. It's been really helpful to see. So they're called Christians in Antioch because they don't wait for permission. They just go and preach to everybody. They're called Christians in Antioch because God's hand was upon them to bless the work. They're called Christians in Antioch because they're new people. We don't know what to call them anymore, so we just call them Christians. Fourth, they're called Christians in Antioch because they gather together. In fact, I'm going to say they're called Christians in Antioch because grace gathers them together. 
What you see here is the report comes in verse 22. The report of this comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the, Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I love one commentator said, you know, there's probably a note of concern here in Jerusalem. There's like this idea of like, what is happening in Antioch? We hear reports of the Jewish believers, the Gentiles now coming to faith, and they're all together in one church. Barnabas, why don't you go and check this out? Now, Barnabas was sent. Barnabas, we know a lot about Barnabas. He's come, across, he's come up a couple times here. Right? Barnabas was, for example, in Acts chapter 4. Barnabas sold the field and, and, and presented it to the, uh, the apostles' feet to help the poor in the church. So Barnabas, we know, he was, called the, he was called the son of encouragement back then. They gave him the nickname. You're a really encouraging guy. We're going to call you Barnabas. Right? He's an encouragement to the, the church in Jerusalem. He's a financial contributor to the church of Jerusalem. And so the church of Jerusalem is actually losing one of their key guys by saying, Barnabas, we want you to go to Antioch and check this out. What else do we know about Barnabas? Well, Barnabas, we know, is really encouraging because when Paul, the apostle, you know, the former persecutor, uh, was presented to the church at Jerusalem, who presented him? Barnabas. So, you know, Barnabas is open-minded about, about what God's, the bigness of God's work. Barnabas is encouraging. He's been a, a key leader, financial contributor to the church of Jerusalem. He's well-known, well-respected by the apostles, called son of encouragement. He's got this open mind of God's grace and what God can do. And we know Barnabas is uniquely positioned for this church in Antioch. Why? Some of you guys who've been in our Acts course. He's, he's uniquely positioned. Where's Barnabas from? He's from Cyprus. He's, a, he, he's Jewish, but he grew up living in Cyprus. And what's, who's making up the most of this Antioch church? It actually said men from Cyprus and Cyrene started preaching to the Greeks as well. And so they send, Jerusalem's like, wow, the Holy Spirit has prepared this perfectly. Barnabas, you go and you figure this out. And so Barnabas goes and he sees them gathered together because he sees that the grace of God is upon them all. And he goes there and he continues to encourage them all to remain steadfastly faithful to the Lord. And so there's been a gathering here of the Antioch church of Jews and Gentiles together in this church. In fact, uh, in verse 20, they're going to be called a church for the first time. And so Barnabas goes and he sees the grace of God bringing people together. And so that's part of what causes them to be called Christians in Antioch, is that they don't just remain individual converts, but that they're gathered together by God's grace into one people. You at your school, for example, you at your school, if, if you're not gathered together with God's people, the label you get is your name. Right? So at your school, you're Judah. At Ottawa U. And so you can be praying, you can be sharing your faith, and people would say, well, that Judah guy, he's really weird. But that's the label, well, we know that, but that's the label you get. You get, you get that label Judah, right? But you start gathering other people together, and you guys start praying, and you guys start praying for your school, and you guys go out and start sharing your faith with people. Now they're not calling you Judah, they're saying, who are these people? It's those weird Christians. That's what they'll say at your school, right? It's those weird Christians that care about each other, that love one another, that love us, that, that go and share their good news with us. And so whether you're in university or whether you're at your workplace or whether you're at your, at your, your high school or junior high school, 
right? It's, it's very hard to stand alone, and it's very hard to get the label Christian alone. But find and seek out the other people around you in your school. There's always things that are coming up. Like this fall, there will be a big thing, um, Alpha, all over the city. They're going to be doing it at different high schools, at different campuses. Find the other Christians around you at your school so you don't have to stand alone. And they're called Christians in Antioch because God not only saves them, the hand of the Lord is not only upon the preaching of the gospel to them, they're not only converted, but they're now gathered together. The, the, the church in Jerusalem sees what's happening there and sees there's something different about those people. Barnabas, you go there and you gather them together and you go and you encourage them together to steadfastly seek the Lord. And so they're, they're given the name Christians partly because Grace gathers them together. And finally, they're called Christians in Antioch because they're taught the way of Christ. It says in verse 25, And a great many people were added to the Lord, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul, if you remember, after he, uh, after he uh, submitted his life to Jesus Christ, uh, he, he spent some time in the wilderness, then he went up to Jerusalem, he started preaching up there, and he kind of got smuggled out of the city, and they sent him to Tarsus. And so now Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he finds him, when he had found him, he brings him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And they're called Christians here. Yes, because people didn't you know, wait for permission, and yes, because the hand of the Lord was upon them, and yes, because, uh, because they, they don't know what else to call them, and yes, because uh, you know, they're gathered together as a people. But they're called Christians here because they're taught the way of Christ. They're taught the way of Christ. I mean, the word Christians, we don't know exactly why they're called Christian. We do know it has something to either, either it means they're little Christs, like they're they're like little kids that emulate their parents, and so they're like little Jesuses running around. Uh, or it might mean better, be better translated, they, they are of those who are belonging to Christ, or, or of those who take his name and his message. We don't actually know why they gave him the name Christian and what it exactly means, but they are a people who have been taught the way of Christ. They go get... Barnabas is there, and he's encouraging them already, and he says, man, this group is growing, I need help, so he goes get Saul of, Tar- or goes get Saul of Tarsus, bring him there, and for a year, they spend the year there instructing them in the way of the Lord. And so the, this idea that they're called Christians is because it, it, it's emphasizing that they are people who are like Jesus, that they are people who are, who are not only converted to Jesus, but who are now following in Jesus' way. That's what we mean when we, talk about, when, I, when we talk about the way of Christ, and I'm going to do a whole sermon on this in, in a couple weeks. When we talk about the way of Christ, what, what we mean is basically two things. We mean those who follow Christ for salvation. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so Jesus, when he came, when he came and walked among us, he presented himself to us. He presented himself to sinners like us. And so there's two roads. There's a broad road that many people are on. There's a broad road that everyone's on. They just follow the way. They follow the way of the world. And there's the broad road that many are on, and it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. But there's a narrow road that leads to life, and few find it. And Jesus said, many will come to me. 
meaning Jesus is the gatekeeper to that narrow way. Jesus is the gatekeeper to the narrow way, and he says, I am, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you, you would be, what Jesus would say is, you are following the way of the world. You're following on that broad world that leads to destruction. But Jesus came to open up a new way to God, a way of forgiveness, a way of his mercy, a way by even being the door himself through his death, burial, resurrection. He, he on the cross, provided a new way to God through the work that he had done. And through the work that he has done in his rising from the dead, he has opened up a new way to God. In fact, when we did the Hebrew service, we talked about how that there is a curtain that had separated the place of God from the place of man. And when Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. And so now we have confidence to enter into the presence of God by a new and living way, Jesus. So we talk about the way of Christ. We are now first talking about the way of Christ that leads to the salvation of sinners like us. Secondly, when we speak of the way of Christ, we mean this, that Jesus was perfect. Jesus was perfect man, perfect God. He followed the law of God perfectly, and he taught us a new way to live. He taught us a new way to live. He said, the whole law can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, well, what does that look like? What that looks like is Christ. It looks like his life. It looks like his love. It looks like his peace. It looks like his joy. It looks like his ability to go to places and to, to embrace sinful people without, without condoning their sin, but, but bringing them in and setting them on a new way. That's what it looks like for Jesus Christ. He is he's not only the way himself to the Father, but he's also the, the teacher and the model of this new way of, of, of life. And so they're called Christians in Antioch, not just because they have the label of Jesus upon them, but because they're actually now, through the instruction in the way of life, they're now actually starting to live like Christ. And then that would be the question for you, is if, if people were seeing you, would they call you Christian? Do you, do you know Jesus as the way of life? Do you understand what he has done for you on the cross to pour out his, his wrath against sin and his love against sinners? A love upon sinners. That's what he has done on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you were, the, the old question was, if you, you were to die tonight, do you know that you would have a way open to the Father through Jesus Christ? And have you trusted in what Jesus Christ has done? Have you trusted in his work to enter into eternal life? That would be the first question. The, the question. the next question is part of it, are you following him? Because that's, that's what it means for Jesus to be the way, is not only that he's opened up a way, but he is the way. And so are you walking upon the way? Are you, are you following him in your life? And then are you living that identity out loud in front of others? Would they call you Christian? This is the church at Antioch. We've seen already, you can go forward here, Zelig, just two, two more slides. We've seen already in the book of Acts, we've seen the church of Jerusalem. We saw the church of Jerusalem was a church for all ages. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fervent prayer, to bold proclamation, to, to selfless sharing among the believers, and, and to personal integrity. So in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, we see this is the character of us. This is to be our church. This is what we are to pray for, to emulate, that we as a people of God might become. And then Going forward in Acts 6 to 12, we now see Antioch, and we've seen it now as the church for all people, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Hellenistic Jews, the ones that were more assimilated into the Roman Empire. 
the hated Samaritans, the excluded eunuchs, the good Gentiles like Cornelius and the the bad Gentiles like we see here in Antioch. And God says, let them all in. If they come through my son, let them all in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we might be this Jerusalem Antioch church. Heavenly Father, I pray that we might be a people devoting ourselves to your word and to prayer, devoting ourselves to one another through selflessly sharing uh, what you have provided and given to us. I pray, God, that we might be a people of integrity walking in the way of Christ. Lord, I, I thank you.